1: Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.
2: I probably know more about markets than these politicians. And anyone who thinks that markets are just or that you can trust CEOs and boards of directors to save America is, doesn't know what they're talking about. That's ridiculous.
3: Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Tom Steyer, the billionaire investor running for president. Steyer's background is finance. He ran a hedge fund for years. He worked at Goldman Sachs, at Morgan Stanley. Then he took a lot of that money and took a lot of that talent and moved into progressive organizing and financing. He has put a ton of money behind efforts on climate change, on democratization, on uh, impeaching Donald Trump. And then, Thomas Sauer decided to run for president. And that puts him in a very complicated position because he's showing that if you can spend a ton of money on your campaign and blanket South Carolina and Nevada and other later primary states and ads, that will have an effect on you in the polls. And if you get that effect in the polls and those donors, and you can move over and be in the debates, and if you're in the debates, you can you know, have a real influence on the race. And a lot of what he believes and thinks is good, and some of it like term limits, which we talk about, I'm a little less sold on. But at the same time, as somebody whose primary message is that corporate money has broken Washington politics, well, he's a billionaire, taking a billionaire shortcut into the presidential primary. So doesn't he embody the very system that he is running to change? Isn't he also part of the problem, even if his message is that that is the problem? And so when he was around to do an interview, this I realized this was actually the conversation I wanted to have with him, that. How do you negotiate that tension between being a billionaire running for president, decrying the influence of money in politics? So this turned in, I think, to a pretty interesting conversation. Tens of times we go through both that question and then a lot of other issues around term limits, national referenda, what is broken in California politics, climate change, healthcare, where he disagrees with Elizabeth Warren. There's a lot in here. Um, but 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 the big picture, which I'm trying to understand a bit myself, is just how do you think about somebody like Tom Steyer? Is he is he the problem? Or is he, can he be part of, or even the solution? As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer, welcome to the show. Ezra, it's really nice to be with you. So I want to start in in an honest place. I admire the political reform work you've done and the things you've built in politics. And I'm uncomfortable at the same time with the idea of there being a billionaire shortcut into presidential politics. Tell me why, for those of us worried about the influence of Rich and Powerful Weald, the right answer to the Thomas Steyer campaign isn't to kindly, gently say no to it. Because it's not a shortcut. I've spent 10 years
2: basically as an outsider in politics taking on what I think of as improper corporate influence that's taken over the government. And the reason I got into this race is I believe that the issue in the United States of America is not health care. It is not education, it is not gun violence, it is not the Green New Deal. It's Why aren't any of those being addressed by our federal government? And the answer is we have a broken government and I've spent, there is no shortcut. I've spent 10 years as an outsider fighting those corporations and beating those corporations and I feel as if someone's gotta do that in Washington
3: DC and isn't it gonna be someone from the outside, but it, there, but there is a shortcut. I mean, the reason what you've been able to do—you've spent the second most on ads in the race. Michael Bloomberg now, just in a couple of weeks, it's amazing I spent more on ads than just about everybody else combined. A teacher who wants to take on corporate interests can't do that. A, a physician, a nurse can't do that. If you won the nomination, we would have two billionaires who had both come into their parties basically by buying their way into politics against each other. And even though I think that your politics have a lot to recommend them, that does seem to me like a bad message for what is happening to the American political system. It seems to me like an object lesson of what's gone wrong, even if you would like to make it right. Look, I'm not saying money doesn't matter, Ezra, but I am saying this. The thing that ultimately
2: matters is message. That what you're saying and whether people trust you to carry it out is the only thing ultimately that matters. And if you look at Mr. Trump, you can see... That in 2016, he took on 16 conventional Republican politicians. And basically, people believed that what he was saying was true, which is there is a swamp. There is a corrupt Washington, D.C., that does not care about us and does not serve us. And they elect, and people supported him because they thought this guy really is going to take them on. And I trust him because he's an outsider. It turns out. His analysis may have been right, but he was a terrible solution because if you look at what he's done, he has followed the exact Republican playbook that I think is so profoundly anti-American and anti-working people. But there was a reason his message was completely different and people viewed him completely differently. If you think the problem is broken government— The question is, who do you actually
3: think is going to go in and change it? But do you think it is a problem at a a conceptual level that billionaires have more of a voice in the system than people who don't have that much money? Look, I'm absolutely in
2: favor of publicly funded elections. I'm actually in, in favor of the most progressive proposal about it, which is to give every in the United States, every citizen, $200 worth of vouchers to contribute to whoever they want. So I am in favor of giving everybody the same chance. But the real question in 2020, which is where we are, is if you think the problem is a broken federal government, that that's the reason we pay twice as much for health care, that that's the reason we've never dealt with gun violence, that that's the reason Congress has never passed climate legislation, then what are we going to do about that? And who are you going to trust to actually take on these corporations and break this corrupt combination? And honestly, no one will even talk. I mean, I'm talking about term limits of 12 years for Congress, people, and senators. And you might like that idea and you might not like that idea. But nobody else will even talk about it. They won't even oppose it.
3: Oh, I'll oppose it. <laughs> okay. I mean, that that's
2: what you're not. Re- but you're not running.
3: Yet. I mean, I, there's still a lot of time to announce in this race. Um, <laughs> so we're sitting here in California, um, and we have term limits, and we also have a, a referendum process. And I think most people believe, and most political scientists who study to believe that— One, we don't have a very functional form of governance here, and term limits and the referenda process are part of it. So I was surprised to somebody who is from California that those showed up as centerpieces in your political reform plan. Give me, I guess, let's start with a case for term limits, because that's one where I know a lot of people find it appealing, but every political scientist I know is horrified by the idea because when they study it, they, they argue that it increases the power of lobbyists and it makes it more likely the members of Congress are always thinking about the next job and not the one they're in now.
2: Well, what I've seen in California is there is a tension between having term limits and having term limits that are too short. And I I understand the argument, and I don't think it's invalid that if it's too short, that therefore the people who are in office don't have their feet under them and don't have enough experience, and therefore they rely on lobbyists or other people who can bring information, and therefore it changes the dynamic. But I also believe in term limits, and I believe strongly that if you're going to change policy dramatically. You're going to have to get new people in. And then in fact, my experience of the California legislature, it's been much improved by having term limits.
3: Tell me about tell me about the argument that you need new people in to do that kind of work. So when we're talking about something like climate change, I think one of the genuine leaders in Congress on that has been Ed Markey, who's been there quite a long time. But part of why he's been effective in Congress on climate change and part of both in Waxman Markey, which was a cap and trade bill under Obama and now in in the Green New Deal, where he's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's partner is because he's been around long enough to, to build the relationships, to know how the place works when I try to separate members of Congress out and try to think about who's doing good work and who's not, I very rarely find that I can sort it well by seniority. I have my frustrations with the way seniority is treated in Congress, but it's hard for me to, to, to cut the analysis by how long people have been there. Tell me why you see that differently. Well, let me say this. I like Ed Markey, too. Ed Markey actually
2: changed from Congress, so he would actually have fit the term limits. Ironically, he would be fine under term limits because he's only been a senator for a little over a term. When you talk about the Green New Deal, look, that was AOC's bill. She is the person who actually pushed that. I think that that's a clean example of that would never have happened without Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That that was, if you really look at the Green New Deal, I understand that Ed Markey is the person who was representing it in the Senate, but I also know that actually the person who popularized that and pushed it was AOC, and I also know that it didn't pass. So that when you talk about it, I will point out the fact that the Congress of the United States has never passed climate legislation ever at a time when if you actually look at the facts, I would argue that they push towards the idea that we are in, in a position where any responsible legislature would have acted. And their failure to act, in fact, is a prime example of a failed Congress that has not worked and has never passed legislation on an issue that threatens the health
3: and safety of every single American. Oh, Congress is terrible. It's awful. But there's absolutely no reason to believe that if you impose term limits, it would pass climate change legislation. I mean, look, uh, in 2010, a huge amount of Congress turned over to the Republicans. And it's not like all of these brand new members of Congress went over and began voting for climate change legislation. The blockage in Congress is partisan, fundamentally, and maybe behind that a bit, corruption. There's a real concern, term limits would make corruption worse um, because people would have to figure out what their job was gonna be when they're being booted out of Congress in a couple of years. But then secondarily, it just seems like an odd one to pin the thing on. I mean, I take your point that AOC is a it deserves a driving um, credit for the Green you know, Deal. No, it's true, obviously true. Oh, of course it's true. But my point with Markey is that I don't think that Congress would have been better served by kicking people like him out after 12 years. Um, but putting putting even that aside, the, the, the key thing for me there is that I just don't see what problem is being fixed here. If you're worried about—like, you focus very heavily on this particular question of term limits. But I covered Waxman, Markey. And if you had had term limits, it wouldn't have made a difference. If you had gotten rid of the filibuster, it might have. If you had restructured—
2: I'd get rid of the filibuster, too.
3: But when I go to your political reform plan, term limits are at the center of it. So I'm trying to understand why they play such a central role in your understanding of political reform. Because I
2: think that what's going on in terms of Congress, the reason that we've never gotten anything to do with climate, for instance— you're saying it's partisanship and I don't think that's true. I think that this overwhelmingly has to do with the influence of the oil and gas companies. And I think that that it, to that has a partisan overtone to it, but in fact, we have never gotten uh, climate legislation and I don't believe we've ever been close. And I th- I know people disagree with me and thought that we were close in 2010, but it was never really brought up for a vote in the Senate, so no one will ever know who's right, but in fact. If you actually look and see, there's something going on here that, from an objective standpoint, is absolutely dramatic. I mean, I am talking about- Trevor Burrus But in the House, there's overwhelmingly
3: Democrats and not Republicans who voted for it. Trevor
2: Burrus Yeah. I understand that there's a partisan overtone to it. But I'm just saying, if you look at this, I'm talking about term limits, I'm talking about direct direct democracy a national referendum, I'm talking about getting rid of Citizens United, and I'm talking about public Mm -hmm. financing of elections. You know, I'm talking about changing the rules, and but to me, it's the partisan part of this is true, but that's not what's driving this problem. The problem that is, that is being driven here, and the example I give you is, look, I started working on climate over a decade ago, and everything I did was bipartisan. and Everything I did, I felt, showed, because I believed that if I could show objectively that there was something important that America could do that helped every American citizen, got us cheaper power, got us higher wages and faster growth, cleaned up the air and water, and let us lead internationally that anyone in their right mind would vote for it. Because it was sort of, there was no argument against it. And do I think that we won that argument? Absolutely. Do I think we won the fight? Absolutely not. Because that was over 10 years ago, and we still
3: don't have any climate legislation or really any prospect for it. I'm surprised you say that it is not a partisan problem, because I think this is a place I'm actually pushing and why I find the, the emphasis on term limits and to some degree direct democracy, though I do want to talk about that because I think it's interesting differently. My experience of Washington has been maybe a little bit like yours, actually, which is to say that when you start working or covering people working on any issue, climate, healthcare. I mean, I remember being in those rooms where, you know, you'd have experts from all sides talking about how you can get a deal and there's something that can make everybody better off. And if you do a carbon tax, but you add it into some nuclear power and so on, healthcare is the same way. We both remember Newt Gingrich and Pelosi sitting on the couch together in that ad saying cap and trade is a good idea. And the thing in American politics, though, that happens is that policy is positive sum. As you say, you can almost always come up with a policy plan that would make a lot of the players, a lot of the stakeholders and people on both sides somewhat better off. The problem is that you can't come up with a plan that would make both sides win the next election. And so the minority party, um, and particularly when it's the Republican Party in recent years, has basically sabotaged uh, quite a bit of effective governance. And so the question that that I have on that is, that to me is the endless like central obstruction and the thing that people need to figure out a way to break through, either by making majoritarian governance possible or something else. And I worry that I mean, I think that's my question for everybody actually I've sat here with from the campaign is what do you do about the partisan gridlock? And let me say this. Yeah.
2: I agree with what you're saying largely, Ezra. I know there's false equivalents. When people say there's gross partisanship in D.C., I say, look, I consider the Democrats to be normally partisan. I believe the Republicans to be abnormally and extremely and wildly inappropriately partisan. And I and I look at that across the board. And I think you, I could make that argument very easily. Just by looking at USMCA Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and saying, look, here's something that Mr. Trump was clearly going to describe as a win that he's going to hope will help him seem like a more effective economic president that the Democrats went along with because they thought it would be good for America. And that never happened one time in eight years with President Obama. Not one time ever. And in fact, and I think that's, I could go to a huge number of other examples where I believe the extreme, wild, inappropriate partisanship on behalf of the Republicans is completely disproportionate compared to what the Democrats do and how they prioritize. I think that's absolutely true. But my answer to you on this, let me say this. I'm sure you know this. I started one of the biggest grassroots organizations in the United States, Next Gen America. We are all about registering, engaging, and encouraging people to vote. We are about knocking on doors, being on campuses, specifically working with people under the age of 35, where we've more than doubled the turnout in the places we are, and also knocking on doors with union partners where we've knocked on over 25 million doors in the last two cycles. We are about a broader electorate, a more representative electorate, and the idea that that's how progressive ideas pass. So in answer to your question, you're saying, how do you actually think this happens? I do think that some of it is how we frame issues that we should be speaking the truth and talking about how we're not at all like Republicans, we're completely different, but also we need to be organizing at the grassroots in a way that the Democratic Party hasn't, crazily enough from my standpoint, and that when we do, we actually get broad-based wins and we do change
3: the, the, the composition of the Senate and the House. One of the problems in polarization like we have now is that almost whatever your diagnosis is of how to fix a system, whether or not you're focused on term limits or direct democracy or public financing of elections or getting rid of the filibuster or getting rid of gerrymandering or doing something about automatic voter registration, you have, particularly in the Republican Party, a party that has been benefiting from the ways in which the current system creates gridlock, but in particular distorts democracy, right? The Republican Party has gotten a lot of mileage out of gerrymandering, gotten a lot of mileage out of the Electoral College, gotten a lot of mileage out of the filibuster. But the problem that seems to be at the center of the system right now is that change anything structural about the system. It is built to require some amount of compromise and even consensus. But the nature of polarization is you can't get that compromise or consensus. So even if I was here to say, term limits are great, national referenda is great, and actually a couple of these things I do believe are great. Them? Public financing sure. is great. How do you pass it through
2: Congress? And So what I'm saying to you is, look, I'm not someone saying, let's do grassroots. I'm someone who's doing grassroots, who's been doing grassroots, who believes in grassroots and can show that it works. But not
3: at this level, you're not.
2: Well, actually, if you look at 2018... I mean, these things haven't changed yet. Actually, if you look at 2018, Mm -hmm. we went in... Next Gen was in 38 congressional districts in swing states. We more than doubled the turnout of people, of young people, 33 flipped. So if you... When I look at... And I'm not saying it's all us. I'm not. But I'm saying this. If you look at 2018 versus 2014 the Republican vote went up from 2014 to 2018, but the Democratic vote went from 35 million to 59 million. So when you ask me what happened and what is the future of actual change, I say what it re- the real change in American politics will come when American people decide they have to participate, which I believe was 18, was 19, and will be 2020. The, the participation yeah, but, levels but will for, reflect. I want to force you to be in take. the in the in the hard part here, which is Republicans gained seats in that election. Absolutely true. But let me say this: yeah. if you'll remember 2018, the way the Senate works is 33 seats per every two years, mm-hmm. and it was a terrible map for Democrats because I think 25 of the 33 seats were Democratic. They had to defend
3: 25, and they had eight. It, it, it was a 2018 wasn't that bad of a map for it was not great, but it was good enough that they needed to do better than they did. I mean, it was in it was in cycle from twenty twelve, right? which wasn't a huge. I'm, I victory. don't remember the numbers exactly. Yeah. I know we could have done better. So I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So, but the, about the, that. the point here, the point here is actually, I'm not throwing this as like a like a like a hit at you. It's not your fault. Democrats didn't win back the Senate. But what I am saying is that the question here of how do you, how do you handle structural reform through a system that at this point, very much distorts the will of majorities. I mean, one thing that was true in 2018 was Democrats won more votes at the Senate level than Republicans. They just didn't win the seats they needed to to win. And so, I mean, one way of saying this right is that the difference between various Democratic candidates is who is going to be the best at grassroots organizing. And you, you know, you have the experience of next gen. Bernie Sanders has his movement. People have different arguments there. Another version is who is going to be better at converting Republicans. That's the Biden argument. The, the thing that I am interested in is like, what do you do about that Senate problem? How do you see the fix to that? Look, I don't, I, I believe that 2020, first of all, will be about winning
2: the presidency. Because
0: mm-hmm.
2: I think if we don't have that, uh, this will be a disastrous year. Second of all, it will be about winning the Senate. Because if we don't flip the Senate, this will not be a disastrous year, but will not be a successful year. And third of all, we have to hold the House. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at it, Ezra, to me, I'm looking at 2020 in a different way, and that's this. I'm saying this has got to be a generational change election. They do happen. The last one in my mind was 1980. We're working off the Ronald Reagan playbook. I believe it's totally failed. I think Mr. Trump is following the Ronald Reagan playbook. I mean, I would take you through why I think he's a much less genial, much more overtly cruel man but actually, they hold exactly the same policies. And so, to me, they're all failed. And the question is, are we going to turn the page on the failure of that revolution and say We're, it's a new day in America? And the way we'll know that's true, the way we'll measure that, is not just flips, but turnout. That Americans say, We're, something is so wrong here that even though I don't normally vote, I'm going to make sure I vote this time because I realize if I don't, it's going to be bad. And if I do, it's going to make a major difference.
3: That's the question in 2020. I want to put a pin in national referendum stuff because I want to come back to it, but I want to follow a thread in something you just said. Because when you say that the Reagan revolution failed and the ideas failed, I think you're an interesting um, messenger for that. You're somebody who you Began your career at Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, you started a hedge fund, you made a tremendous amount of money in the markets. And to believe that, it is to say that there is something deeply wrong in the market. So I'm curious what that background has taught you about, I guess what Bill now call neoliberal economics, but in general, about the ways in which markets do or don't serve people's needs.
2: Well, let me say something else just to addend what you said, Ezra, because those things are all true, but they're not the whole truth. I also took the giving pledge to give away the bulk of my money while I'm alive to good causes. I've also spent 10 years working against corporations and putting together coalitions of Americans to fight
3: corporate influence in government. But that's a bit what I mean, that you have an interesting class trader dimension. Something
2: to you. happened that I, look, when I started, I was a young guy who believed America works. You went to school in the United States. I went to school in the United States. You took fourth grade civics. I took fourth grade civics. They told us we're the greatest democracy in the history of the world and it's the will of the people and there are three parts of government and everything else they teach in fourth grade. And I believed it, and I thought, okay, we're not a perfect system, but basically the way America works is we have two parties, they scream and yell at each other, they compromise and solve a problem, and they move on, and then they scream and yell at each other a little more. But it, but it works. And as I was, it, it, as a process of actually being involved in the world, I realized, oh, God, it it's not working, that what I thought was true. So if you, if you have a government that works you vote. But, you but wait, have your I don't want I don't want
3: we were talking about the government a minute ago. I'm actually interested in your view on markets. Cuz you're deeply inside them. Like I one of the things that's
2: true about markets is I probably know more about markets than these politicians. I 100% believe you do. I do, I know. And anyone who thinks that markets are just or that you can trust CEOs and boards of directors to save America is doesn't know what they're talking about. That's ridiculous. Tell me why. Which part any of them. Okay. Look, the job of a CEO is to make money for his or her shareholders and it's overwhelmingly his. And when, it, when people say, oh, they're going to take the money that they get from this tax cut and share it with their workers, my answer is why? Why? They have a deal with their workers and this is completely unaffected by a tax break. So if they get an extra $100, they're not going to take $1 and go, you know, I really like Ezra. I'm gonna give him one of the $100. They're not gonna say that. They're gonna say, I have a deal with Ezra. This is what he makes. And someone just gave me $100 and my shareholders $100. That's awesome. When people said they're gonna share it, I never believed it for a single second. It wasn't true. It didn't turn out to be true. When you talk about a market being just, why? Whoever said a market was just? Are markets, if not just, are they efficient? They're efficient, but not in the way that you mean. The idea of an efficient market is the idea that there are 100 companies making widgets and 1,000 people buying widgets, so the company that wins is the one that basically makes widgets, the best widgets at the lowest price and gets 1,000 people to buy most of their widgets, right? Mm -hmm. That's the theory. That's not America. That's not what's happening. When you look at these companies that are selling drugs, they have one customer. They have a patent. There's no 100 Companies making that drug, selling to a thousand people. There's one company selling to one government, and and there's a it's a political relationship. So as we look at the increasing consolidation of America, the the thing they teach you in Econ 101 is less and less and less true. And so what's really going on is these corporations are trying to change the rules so that they get as far away from Econ 101 as possible. And what they've also done is they. If you're, if I'm working for you, and I'm somebody who's just, I'm a middle manager, I'm a cleaning staff person, I'm whatever, but I'm not associated with revenue. You view me now as a widget, and you know what you do with widgets? You keep the cost down. Mm-hmm. You ha- you employ as few widgets at the lowest co- possible price, and you make sure you don't think about human beings as human beings. They're just widgets. They're a cost. If I'm associated with your revenue line, okay, now you think of me as someone. Who's affecting your compensation and the return to the shareholders. Now you're going to go like, do you need a massage at lunch? But it's a completely different attitude. So this whole idea about efficient markets, let me just say this, comes from, do you really want to know this?
3: I really do, actually. This is super interesting.
2: Efficient markets come from a book written by a guy named Burton Malkiel. Mm -hmm. And the theory was no one can predict stock markets. And all he meant was, he didn't mean they were efficient. He meant that they're completely unpredictable. So no one can put together a scheme to to show where they're going to go.
3: My understanding of that was that he had meant that they absorb all the information that is available. And if you're an individual person out there, you're not going to beat it, which I deeply believe about myself.
2: And you're absolutely (laughs) right. And, but but my point, Ezra, is that doesn't mean that the way that markets work is just or produce the best product at the lowest price which is what people think it means. Mm-hmm. They're taking the word efficient out of context. What's really true about markets is there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on about people's ability to compete, Billy's ability to have competitive advantage and separate themselves. And in the political context, there's a gigantic political aspect to it that these corporations are absolutely controlling. So when you look at a drug cost, what does that got to do with uh, the Econ 101? When you look at a private hospital buying up doctor's practices, what does that got to do? That's, oh, they're trying to gain monopoly rents. When you look at insurance companies, this is not Econ 101. It's not even close to it. I, when people talk about these defense
3: contractors in the government, you really think that's Econ 101? That is a million miles from Econ One. But there are a lot of businesses that aren't primarily built on government contracts, even cronies. And, and, and one thing a, I'm actually— I agree with you, but let me make this point. Yeah. Let's choose one, Walmart. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think there's no political aspect to the minimum wage and what they pay? Mm-hmm. You, when you sign up, and I know that you are a longtime Walmart employee, you remember the A greeter, your, usually. <laughs> you greeter remember that on your first day, they give you a packet that includes how to apply for food stamps, how to apply mm-hmm. for SNAP. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. One of the the richest families in the United States controls a company that pays its millions of employees so poorly that they get billions of dollars of food stamps from the American taxpayer because their wages are so low.
3: So what you're saying in a, in a deep you don't way think is that what is left out of a lot of this market analysis is power. Yes. I'm not opposed to the private sector.
2: I know we need a private sector. I know we need a competitive, dynamic, innovative private sector. That doesn't bother me the least. They don't get to write the rules because if they write the rules, they're writing the rules for them and that's what's been happening. They're writing the rules for them and honestly Ezra, I've been going around this country as a political organizer and a candidate for seven years full time doing nothing else and it's not right, I can tell you. It's not right and I would. I've traveled all over this country Red states, blue states, talking to people, knocking on doors, holding town halls. It's
3: so far from right, it would make your head spin. But I want to, before we go back into the political side of this, actually, because one of the arguments you make is that you would run against Trump based on partially business experience, that you're better at business than he is. What made you good at investing? We were talking a minute ago about how most of us can't beat the markets. You did beat the markets. You made a lot of money beating the markets. What, What made you good at that job? What were you able to see and what did it teach you? Puzzles. I'm
2: I'm actually fascinated with puzzles and I believed and believe that figuring out how to allocate money is something that's an important function in a capitalist system. And what I thought going into it was that the system was fair or if it wasn't fair, it would right itself. And the reason that I took the giving pledge and I'm doing all this work and have been doing this work for a decade is I decided, no, this system should be so much better. It's not serving working Americans, and it's not serving in a
3: way that's so cruel that I just can't stand it. But what made you good at that work? I mean, tell me more about the puzzles. What makes you good at solving them? Because this this is, a, I think, a key question for any candidate, right, is the legislators who are running, what they can say. Is I've passed all these laws. Elizabeth Warren has passed a good number. Bernie Sanders was the amendment king of the House for a period of time. They've all passed more laws, certainly than I have, and and directly in a way than you have. But what you have that they don't is this experience. And so I'm I'm curious how your well, experience you looking at these industries. Look, this would is help about investing. Is about anticipating the future,
2: right? Mm-hmm. It's not about knowing what's going on today. It's understanding what's going on today, why it's happening. What's going to happen and how to participate it also, but also how to, you know, what creates value? What can you, what, what can you do to invest in and support in a way that it will grow and create more value? So it's anticipating and influencing the future. So, you know, and I'll give you some examples in politics. I've been working on climate for a really long time. I've been working on climate and people said, this is a total stone loser, Tom. I was like, Really? take a look at the facts and understand what is going to happen and what we have to do to affect it so that we have, so we actually can be better off in every single way. I've been saying that for a long time and I've been working on it. I don't know if you know, but we just got another win yesterday in Arizona where for we've been working for years battling the local utility, the Arizona Public Service Company to do 50% clean energy by 2030. They absolutely fought us For years, they finally gave in yesterday and said yes. Huge. I don't think anybody reported it, but that was a gigantic win and that we've been fighting on that for years because it's a purple state. It's the sunniest state in the United States, and they were 6% solar and fighting not to do one bit more. I'm like, that's terrible for Arizona. You can have cheaper power. Why not? What's the argument against it? But so so when you think about... And what did it take to win in Arizona? They had to believe that we would never give up. Who is they? Arizona Public Service Company. They had to believe that we would keep going back to the people and keep putting it up on the ballot and we would never give up because we were right and we would never stop because we wouldn't. But but let me say this. Impeachment. When I started impeachment, everyone's like crazy left-wing fantasy. No, the most corrupt president in American history, obviously, and by the way, it's going to get worse. So whatever you think about the, the truth when we started Need to Impeach and getting eight and a half million people to sign up and call their Congress people and insist they do the right thing, that was not just understanding the situation. It was knowing what was going to happen and then affecting it to drag those people to understand this is right and wrong. This is right at the heart of our system. That's a change. In every one of these situations, it's not just, and it's just like investing. You have to understand where you are, you have to understand why you're there, you have to understand what's likely to happen and how you can affect it. Isn't that, you know, i had someone who's a professional politician say to me, Tom, why do you keep wondering so much about what's gonna happen? He said, well, you wonder about what's gonna happen so you can figure out how to avoid the really bad things and make sure that the really good things happen. He goes, no, no. That's not what you do in politics. In politics, you just let it happen and then react. I'm like, well, I guess that's why we are where we are. Because that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my whole life.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes state farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget talk to your local state farm agent today about small business insurance like a good neighbor state farm is there
4: support for the gray area comes from borough getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying box support for the gray area comes from bombas how's your sock drawer looking these days underwhelming is it the seat of all your disappointments a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves well this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with bombas finally i have something to look forward to Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
1: There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no-coffee traffic jam. The soggy morning jog. The why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high-quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Tell
3: me about the national referendum idea.
2: Look, I know that people worry about the choices of Americans. But in my mind, we have a completely broken government and I've watched in California and I had a prejudice against propositions, you know, originally and I thought, oh, it's crazy. What I've seen in California is we wouldn't be where we are. And I know you said you don't think we have a particularly good government, but if you'll remember back a little way, we didn't have a particularly bad government. We had no government at all. We'd kind of broken down. You may have been in D.C.
3: during those years. No, no, but that was partially because of the proposition process. Like Prop 13 was part of why our government was terrible. It part of why you couldn't raise taxes. There have been some. Um, r- I mean, the propositions have been have been part of what handicapped uh, the California government. Originally,
2: I agree with you. But what I
3: see now is the only
2: way that they ever raise revenues is on the ballot. You know, if you look at Prop 30, which was
3: really Jerry's change to the income mm-hmm. taxes, Never would have got that through the legislature, didn't try. But in part because they created these super majorities, I think through propositions in the legislature, though I could be wrong about how that was constructed. But all I know
2: is the one thing they did pass, as you know, was the um, gas tax. Mm -hmm. And it cost a state senator his position. He got recalled. And I think everybody in, in Sacramento realizes that wasn't a particularly onerous tax. But I think everybody realizes at this point that from now on, all revenue goes through the ballot. And I think that the, all the hard political choices, maybe because of partisanship, you know, you could have a conversation about why it's true, but it is true. And if you looked about why, you know, yeah, the economy's bounced for sure. I'm not, but the economy wasn't terrible through that whole period when we were paying people with scrip. Mm-hmm. What happened was we raised the income tax, we pushed for the two dollar pack cigarette tax, you know, Prop 39 to close a corporate tax loophole. There've been a series of things that together have meant a lot, difference in terms of California revenues, that were completely appropriate. I mean, I was led a bunch of them, and
3: and they all went through the ballot, and they couldn't, they wouldn't have passed any of them through the legislature. How do you imagine things getting onto the? So your national referendum plan, as I understand it, limits it to two a year, correct? Trying look, I understand you're in California too.
2: Yeah, we have a super complicated. Yeah, yeah. So how do they get? Balance.
3: How do you get into one of those two it's slots be, under your plan? I mean,
2: it's always been signatures,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, it would be signatures that you know people have to compete in order to get the most
3: signatures. So it's just a, it's a generalized. See, I think the thing that is always tricky to me is actually that choosing process. I like in general the idea of having at least some things that go that can to the be people. Moved to referendum, yes, they go to the they, they go to the people in a different way. The problem is. To me, what has gone wrong often in the California process is that it's become another thing For money. that money can hijack.
2: What i found, and what I've found is that what, really, I think Californians have gotten a lot better at props. I don't know if you've noticed. More jaded. <laughs> well, but they, but they also do their homework. You know, when I talk to Californians, and I'm not talking necessarily about your dad who's a college professor, but just people who, who I meet at a town hall, people, kids going to school, you know, regular people who I meet as part of being a political organizer, they do their homework. They sit there, they ask each other, they try and figure out who can I trust on this. It really has become much more participatory and I think really good. I love trusting Americans. I worry about what you're saying about people manipulating them because of the the way the advertising works. I worry about it. It's really important to have very transparent rules about where the money's coming for an ad. So for instance, you know this, PG&E ran a proposition, spent $25 million, and got beaten by a bunch of activists who I think had honestly somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars. Mm -hmm. Because every time PG&E put on an ad, it said paid for by PG&E, and everyone said, okay, I know that's not true. So transparency really is important for referendum propositions. Would the propositions in this construct be revisable by legislature? I think yes. I, but my but the thing that I find interesting about them when they've gone wrong, and I agree with you in the in the a long time ago, but they're still important. I'm not trying to diminish it. There were some props passed, including Prop 13, that I think have been hard to overturn and really hard on the, our, our state in, in significant ways. The thing that I've liked about props when they've also I think. Three strikes was a terrible piece of legislation mm-hmm. and really dramatically unfair and really had a bad impact on the state of California for sure. But it also got redone through propositions. And I think that what we've seen is when it goes wrong, we need to act faster and put and undo it faster because when we're wrong, we're wrong. But that's true of legislation too. And it's true of the Supreme Court too. The question is overall, do I think that it's moved the ball forward? And I know in California it does.
3: Well, I'll, I'll give an example of the kind of thing that worries me in the proposition process. And I think it would be fair to critique this as saying that I'm worried about certain forms of democracy, but balanced budget amendments are something that sound good to people. If you poll them, they poll wonderfully well. And there are times when it would be fine to balance the budget. Or I even think. have a, God forbid, surplus. And we have. But there are also times when it is terrible, when I it know. ties hands in a, in a very I dangerous understand. way. And so the kind of thing that I worry about in the way it is difficult to revisit them? Is it, that passes in a flush time and then you're in the 2007 recession and you're in trouble. So how do you think about that? Well, let
2: me say this. Yeah. No 123, which was the first prop I was in, was an attempt by oil companies to do vi- that very thing, which is to say, this is too expensive to do this clean air stuff. It was in a tough time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And they were saying, let's take advantage of this tough time to screw California and be able to get rid of their clean air laws. And we got 70% of the vote. It was a question of, yes, there is a threat to it. And the question is, do you trust people to be smart enough to see through the meretricious argument? And my, I do, as long as there's another side that shows up and tells the truth. That's what I really believe in my hard hearts. If nobody shows up and nobody tells the truth if is organized, then somebody can take advantage. But the truth will win with the people if you're organized and, and, and have your voice. You don't have to spend
3: the same amount, but you have enough, to have enough for people to hear you. But would uh, – sorry, I want to make sure I understand this. Would these be revisible by legislature or is it I, going through I, honestly, another process? I, ha-
2: I haven't thought about that that clearly. I'm, I, I'm sitting here thinking about it. I think my answer is yes because if the legislature undid something and the people really felt bad about it, it would show up on the next ballot. Mm-hmm. And, 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 so I, I think the answer is yes. But let me say this in terms of the econ stuff you are asking me about before. Look, I have thought about this stuff in econ. I have a different way of thinking about all these things than everyone else who's running for this.
3: We are not doing. Mr. Trump stinks as an economic president. Well, what, yeah, stinks. He, he's bad. But what 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 is different between you and say Warren on this? Because she's somebody who also thinks about the way markets are rigged. Thinks a lot about whether or not efficiency is serving societal goals. Where do you where do you part with the way she thinks about reforming markets? Well, I think let's start with my number
2: one priority, which has to do with energy markets and climate. That's definitely not her first priority. And so, from my standpoint, the number one issue we have that's market related is dealing with climate. That's our number one issue where I believe we're, we're doing something disastrously wrong. And I, I think she might agree with me, but she wouldn't put it anywhere near the same place in terms of timing, in terms of
3: priority. I, I, I definitely take your point, and something I want to come to because I actually think the most important thing about having you on the debate stage is, is making this argument for climate as a first priority. But you just said the way you think about the business and economic I, questions Well, I don't different. think, I, I mean, I do think that's true because I don't think that Elizabeth Warren's ever been in the private
2: sector. She's been a college professor and a senator.
3: Yes, but, but so tell me specifically, do you, what where do you disagree with how she would regulate? She has a view that the thing we need to do is reconstruct competition in markets. It sounds similar to what you're doing. I mean, she studied markets, right? So uh, as you know, my my family's in college professing, so I, I take that as a as, as high as high experience. So tell me where you part with her. What is she as wrong you know, about, not just you know, prioritization?
2: My grandfather was in a college professor. Mm-hmm. My uncle was a college professor. I wouldn't put him in charge of the economy. <laughs> I'm just saying, look, it, when I— Sh- Should
3: it be businessmen in charge of the economy?
2: All I was saying was, in terms of understanding this, in terms of understanding what actually creates long-term jobs, what actually creates prosperity, what actually makes economic justice and economic growth, I do think I'm in a completely different but, but, position. But
3: drive that into specificity for me. What is it? Where do you disagree? I, I said to you, look— Just climate
2: I, first. No. That's, the... I, look, she's for Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. I'm not for Medicare for all. Tell me why. Choice. I'm for healthcare as a right for every individual. I'm for the government driving down the cost of healthcare because I don't believe that this is a perfect market or anything remotely approaching it. This is a market where there's huge political overtones and the government's completely fallen down in terms of representing the American people as their lead negotiator. But I also don't believe in telling 160 million people. That you know what, we're going you, you've negotiated to get your health care through your employment, and that's out. you're now doing it my way or you're breaking the law. That's a completely different attitude. My goal in this is to actually get corporations out of running the government, but it's not to get government to take over. She wants to have the government start manufacturing drugs specifically, that's part of her way because she feels as if there aren't enough, well, Companies. In, in
3: her, her proposal, for people to don't know it, is in places where you're having one of these situations where a generic drug is only being manufactured by one player, as has happened in insulin or some of these other orphan drugs, that you would have the government either directly manufacture a competitor or directly create a contract to manufacture the competitor. Which I would never do. Why? Because I don't believe the government is has been successful in terms of actually— But, but so what would you do when you have one of these generic drugs that only one player is making and they're jacking up the prices on people who can't afford it?
2: since we're the since the government is often the buyer i wouldn't go and manufacture the drug myself i would try and understand why no one else thinks they can make money when americans are paying 10 times as much for insulin as canadians and i would try and make sure that there was enough com- competition in the market this is about consolidation of the market but but her thing is a very direct way to get more of that competition by manufacturing drugs and mm-hmm. having the company, the country manufacture drugs? I mean, in certain cases. I, I'm trying to I'm get the right, economic would, principle no, underlying saying, here. I would never do that. Mm-hmm. I, I, look, my attitude, and I'm showing you two different yeah. times where what she's saying is there's a problem in the market, agreed, and her answer is to have the government do it. And my answer is no. In general, when you've seen governments go in to compete with private sector, it hasn't really worked. And so, in terms of services sometimes but not in terms of manufacturing not in terms of products doesn't make any sense to me the question is why is that market so consolidated and unfair that people can't make money producing insulin when they're charging this much what do you think the answer is cheating
3: what what is the cheating
2: there's enormous amount of cheating in the drug manufacturer business
3: cheating on what people making agreements with each other not to manufacture drugs so it's like cartel behavior yes and so this is an a, something you could do through antitrust or federal yeah competition uh-huh. rulings not exclusively but mm-hmm. that's a big part of it that
2: in fact this is not the answer is not going to be have the government go into business every time there's a market failure there's going to have to be a question of just going in and making sure that look if you think about it logically we pay 10 times as much for insulin as Canadians pay for insulin
3: mm-hmm. Oh like, I, literally but so, that, and that's directly that's a, government
2: government <laughs> negotiation Yes that's a big, fat margin. Anybody in the world who's in the drug manufacturing business should be sitting there going like, okay, I'll do it for nine times as much. Because you figure they're not losing money selling to
3: Canadians at one-tenth. So guess what? At nine times, it's still pretty good business. So why would it make sense? Your health care plan, as I understand it, does have a public option that would be run by the government.
2: Yeah. It's Medicare. Mm-hmm. Choose it, it's basically me- Medicare for, for those to, who want it. That kind of thing. Yeah.
3: So why is it useful for the government to offer a public competitor to insurers as opposed to, in certain cases, just manufacture a generic drug, which in many ways seems like a much simpler operation?
2: Because, in fact, we're in that business already. That, in fact, I said in terms of—I was drawing the distinction Mm -hmm. between a service where this is a, I believe, a right. I'm also in favor of public education, where I believe this is a right for every American— and the government should be providing that. And in terms of Medicare, they do. All I'm saying is I wanna preserve choice. That I, I believe if we do a good job with the public option and we can try, have lower overhead, Medicare has much lower
3: overhead, we don't have a profit margin. We're not paying taxes. Right, oh no, I take that distinction. I guess the thing I'm asking is why is the government good at delivering, why in your view? The is distinction good de- for me is it's good at delivering services but not manufacturing physical goods. What would make it capable at one but not the other?
2: Because I think one of them is a right and one of them is a product and products are one, one of them is representing citizens specifically. And the other is selling a product into a service business. I just think the government in terms of providing the rights of citizens, the way they do with healthcare, the way they do with schooling, the way they do in a series. And I can think of a number of other places where the government provides a service. Great. All I'm saying is I don't believe that the government has to ex- be the exclusive people providing that service, and all over the world, there really are hybrid systems. You know, almost every single advanced country has healthcare as a right, that every every citizen has a right to healthcare, but they also have hybrid systems where some people get their healthcare through their employers, and it's, it's more different. It's, state, it's country by country, but what I'm talking about is something that would be completely in the normal, where the government could drive down the cost dramatically, could make healthcare a right for every American, And wouldn't take away the choice from Americans where you just go in and say, you know what, I don't care what you want. I know better than you do. You're doing it my way.
3: Let me ask you about another piece of this, which is one of um, the other places where Warren has an interventionist approach on the markets is practically in finance. She would like to break up large banks. She would like to impose a a pretty hefty financial transactions tax. You've been in the markets. Um, Do you think those are good ideas? How would financial regulation change under a Tom Steyer presidency?
2: Let me say that I went down to Washington D.C. in 2009 and said, "This is our chance to break up the banks. They're too big, too big to fail. Is too big. You own the, We. This is the chance. So, I believe that we're going to be better served without this kind of consolidation in the banking system. I believe we're. You know, my wife and I started. I'm sure you know a community bank in Oakland that's now over a billion dollars in California. Nonprofit that's nonprofit. It's aimed at. Economic justice, environmental sustainability and supporting businesses owned by women and people of color. And so we have a, you know, I I believe that the banking system, absolutely, I wanted to break them up then. It's, It's been consolidating in a way that I think is very unhealthy. I think that they have weight, they probably have more lobbyists in control than anybody else. What were the other parts besides breaking Transactions
3: up? tax. Do you, do you think the, the economy not a, is
2: overly financialized in definitely. that way? Mm-hmm. But I'm
3: not, I, you know,
2: the finan- the transactions tax, it's been tried all around the world. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's not a new idea. Yep. My experience of transaction taxes is what it does is what it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. I'm not opposed to it. I just think when I look at taxes, I want to, before I would do that in terms of actually being effective and actually addressing the issues, Before that, I would undo all the income tax giveaways to rich people and big corporations. I would have a wealth tax, which I proposed almost a year and a half ago, long before I was running for president, because I think what's going on is so unfair. And actually, I would treat investment income exactly the same way I treated earned income. I don't understand why those rates are lower. I proposed treating investment income like earned income and then giving a 10% tax cut to 95% of Americans, because I know that raises an amazing amount of money. The problem with the transaction tax, I'm not opposed to it. I just believe that what I've seen in the world is that when you put in the transaction tax, people do the transaction somewhere else. They do the transaction. They just avoid the tax. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not opposed to it theoretically. I just don't rely on it in terms of actually solving a problem or raising revenues so that you can invest in the American people because my experience of it is people get around it.
3: Yeah. The, the One of the things it seems to me with the financial tax space is that the ability Ability to impose taxes tends to lag a little bit behind the ability of bank lawyers to evade taxes. And, and
2: that's why if you listen to what I'm talking about, those are all simple things that we can do that definitely raise a lot of money.
3: Tell me about and climate. definitely
2: address the inequality in our in, in our that I consider to be unfair, unjust, and
3: unsupportable. Tell me about climate change. I want to ask this question in a particular way. I am frustrated with the level of altitude on the climate debate. When it comes up in Democratic primaries, totally but I think agree. like on health care, people get a sense of what the differences are on the candidates. Some support abolishing private insurance and doing Medicare for all. Some support these more public option programs on climate. I think it's very hard to tell what separates people. So we'll talk about prioritization in a second. But tell me. What are the policies that give you leverage to decarbonize? What is What specifically would have to happen for America to meet the targets you set out in your bill? What, is it, what does America look like on the other side? way think about this,
2: I, well, look, when we think about what we have to do, it is basically clean up energy generation, make it clean, make it renewable, electrify everything. There's no point in plugging your car into a coal plant and increase energy efficiency. And it goes through the whole system. So... Yes, we have to start with the equivalent of renewable portfolio standards, the percentage of energy clean. What I just said we did in Arizona, 50% clean by 2030. We've got to move. That's first. Secondly, transportation, as you know, is really becoming the number one American cause of greenhouse gases. We cannot keep, we cannot depend on the internal combustion engine going forward. We have to make a transit. We have to move to cleaner sources of energy. We just have to. And how do you do that? By determining how, what kinds of cars get made. That we, we have rules. You know, one of the things that California gives us a chance to do is we've had a cap and trade system since 2006. We've had all of these rules for years. In, in terms of building codes, we've had them since 1970. Mm-hmm. You can see they put in the rule, this happened. They put in the rule, this happened. So we aren't even guessing. Look, I I know what works because we have data. We have, you know, what is that? 50 years of data? So when people talk about a carbon tax, I go like, well, okay, not a big deal, but if you want to. There are things that really work, and what really work are changing the rules so that
3: people can invest based on the new rules. There's a debate among climate people I know as to whether or not we have the technologies we need or we still need to invent the technologies we need. Where do you come down on that? Well, since we're in California, you know that the technologies we have are always going to get better.
2: You know, that's, we're on a technology decline curve in every single thing, and you know, you don't need me to point out the phone change, the computer change, the all the, the, the efficiency of wind and solar change. They, they've, they've all gotten infinitely better and will continue to get much, much better. So do we have the technology we need? Yes and no. We have the technology which if we build on, we will be able to solve this problem with a high degree of confidence. I don't doubt that for a second. Are we also going to get some breakthroughs that no one thought about? I'm sure we will you know, and I know that people are working on things. And, you know, I always say to people, it's like the Holy Grail. You come into my office and you say, you know, we do this one thing and we're going to totally solve greenhouse gas emissions. I go, great. And you know what? I have the shin bone of Christ back there in in, in my uh, bedroom, which I'm going to sell you. So do I think we'll get big breakthroughs? Sure. Do we need them? They'll sure as heck help, but we don't need them. We can do this
3: stuff with the Technology we have as it continues to decline. Can we globally do this stuff and yes. continue having the level of growth we need to have for people in China and India and Bangladesh yes. and other places to this have the lives is, they
2: want? I don't know, Ezra. If you've ever looked, you, you know what. Uh, when people put out bids for new energy generation, you, you bid based kilowatt hour mm-hmm. per kilowatt hour. The lowest is wind, and the second lowest is solar, and they're only going to get cheaper. So that's true. That's just physics. That's true now, it's gonna be more true in the future. They need technology support, they need financial support, they need commercial support, and we can provide all that. you know, I say, I declare state of emergency on day one, partially for the reason you said, which is this, how does Ezra fly to India and explain that they need to clean up their energy generation if we haven't cleaned up our energy generation? If we haven't said this really matters, this is our priority one, we're in a state of emergency. We're asking you to join us and we'll show you that it's better for you. H- how does that happen if we haven't, if we don't have the moral footing to say, we're treating this super seriously, we think this is life and death, we can help you do it in a way that's gonna make you richer and healthier,
3: but you gotta do it with us. You emphasize the point of state of emergency. What does that let you do? I don't think people are. are I think it really Donald does. Donald Trump has declared one on the wall, but there is no wall yet. So, like, what is state of and emergency? And there is no state of do?
2: emergency either. I think it lets me put in the rules that I think are. You said to me what actually works. I believe in rules. I, it, that that you put in rules that people have to obey. Ultimately, we are going to have to spend a lot of money of our you know tax money rebuilding America, the government part of America. Sure. We're way behind on our infrastructure anyway. This is going to be the biggest work program, union work program in American history, and we're going to have to do it. But we need to start with a state of emergency and the president putting in rules about how we're going to generate. Does energy. State of
3: emergency give you different rulemaking yes, powers. Yes, it does. It's
2: literally like saying we're going to. Here's the RPS. Here's the building code. Here's how many. Here's how many internal combustion engines we're going to go. Here's going to be the mile per gallon average going forward. Boom, 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 boom. We're in a state of emergency. These are the rules, and I have a right to do it, and we're doing it. And let me say this. You're 35 years old? I am. You have to know that what I'm saying is real and, and important. I'm not just saying it. This is not a political statement. This is where we are. And if you don't believe... And if, you, if you're if you 35 years old, you have to know. I don't care what your job is. As a human being, you have to know we have to do this. And I'm not kidding about it. That You know, I think everybody... And you, I have four kids who are 26, 28, 29, 31. They know. I mean, this is not a political issue. This is their life. And that's how they see it. Like, we have to get this right. And that's how I see it. It's like, if we don't do this, we're
3: not doing our job. I know you have a place to be right after this, so let me ask you the question we use to end the podcast, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I have. Th- can I
2: give you two different sets of three? Yeah, I'll give it. you the three really important books from my standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then I'll give you three books. I, I knew you asked people this question. Mm-hmm. I thought about three books that I'd read recently that are on the, They may not be on the bestseller list, but they're pretty, more is better, in the last year. Look, the Bible. I happen to be religious. I happen to think that that's the, the way that I relate to spirituality, and that's been super important to me. Then to be super pretentious, but I mean it. War and peace. I mean, it's, total blow away, mind blowing book about humanity. And I guess I'd say something by Faulkner, Mm -hmm. because I think he wrote about America. Who would believe that an alcoholic, white Mississippian could be that truthful about America? It's kind of like OMG in terms of, so those are all about, they're tough. Those are books that you're going like right into the core of your stomach. It's like, do I really have
3: to do this? Oh God!
2: And then when you're done, you think, I, I think differently.
3: The oh, Faulkner is beautiful to read. Oh, they're all beautiful. Oh my God! I mean, War and, war, war and Peace, yeah. I've always had more trouble with. I, I need Skip to take the another part about Napoleon. And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even read it. I just blew it off.
2: So the three books that I've read recently, and I was thinking about it because I just read a book called The Good Assassin, which is about Cuba at the end of the Batista regime, when Castro was coming out of the hills and how Americans were relating to it. And it was fascinating to me about the role of America and how, when we've been wrong, why we've been wrong and how badly we've been wrong. Really interesting to me. There was a book that I read which was very popular where it's called Where the Crawdads Sing Mm -hmm. about a young female scientist. That was just so fun and positive (laughs) (laughs) enough. It's just a sheer joy to read. And then I was thinking I read a book this year, um, by actually last year at this point, by Zora Neale Thurston, you know, who wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is Mm -hmm. one of my old time favorite books, which I always loved. And she wrote a book after interviewing, I think she thought was the last person who'd been shipped to America as an enslaved person from Africa. And it was in the... Early 19, It was like 1931, and she went down and interviewed him and had a long conversation about every single stage of his life. And he was a very elderly guy, you know, 1931, who would come and been a slave and then been freed after the Civil War. And then his life down south during Jim Crow and how the whole thing went. Absol- and I love Zora Neale Thurston. And I just thought, wow, that is something that's important to read, to get that in your head about, as a human, how every single stage of that went.
3: Tom Steyer, thank you very much. Ezra, it's really nice to be with you. Thank you to Tom Steyer. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Raja Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production.